0: Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief
1: Justice, and may it please the court.
0: Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. So, from the testimonies we are collecting from victims, it is a sense of retaliation against them because they are Muslims.
1: This is life of the law. I'm Nancy Mullane. There have been a series of terrorist attacks in Europe, and now France, one of the country's hardest hit, is adjusting to this elevated threat. Last week, the French Parliament passed yet another law that gives state police and judicial authorities the power to detain people suspected of terrorist activities, put people under house arrest, and use deadly force to stop potential threats. French people have been trying to cope with the fact that not only is their country a target for terrorism, but terrorists who participated in the attacks were born and raised in France and in neighboring Belgium. And now the French are asking a question Americans have struggled with. How does a country balance civil liberties with safety and security? Producer Emma Jacobs reports from Paris on how the French are answering the question, and the answer is right at the intersection of French values, French fears, and French laws.
2: On a Tuesday morning in March, images of smoke rising from the Brussels airport loop on the television at the Café Le Carion in Paris. News of the explosions has just broken. One man drinking coffee at the bar is riveted by the TV on the back wall. But others who stop in for a morning espresso seem unaffected. The bartender stands watching the television when it's quiet. He's cheerful and chatty with customers. This is a prime example of Paris' new normal. Le Carrion was one of the places attacked in November by ISIS fighters. It's only been a few months since workers finished patching the bullet holes. Parisians are trying to return to their old, normal lives. But Paris remains on high alert. Soldiers in camouflage patrol the narrow sidewalks and search bags at the post office and department store. France is also grappling with how to adapt its laws to keep people safe. Three days after the November attacks in Paris, French President François Hollande made a speech in the Grand Palace of Versailles, the symbol of French power.
0: La France est en guerre.
3: France is at war. The acts committed in Paris and near the Stade de France on Friday evening are acts of war.
2: It was a forceful speech made by a socialist president at a time when the far right seemed poised to benefit from fears of terrorism. Immediately after the attacks, Hollande had declared a nationwide state of emergency. It's a temporary legal status laid out in a law from the 1950s. It allows police and the government sweeping powers to conduct warrantless searches and house arrests and to shut down big events or even private sites like mosques. In his speech, Hollande asked Parliament to extend that state of emergency for three more months. He also asked the legislature to amend the Constitution, allowing the government to strip citizenship from convicted terrorists. And he wanted to take that state of emergency provision from the 1950s law and add that to the French Constitution, making legal challenges harder. But while some in France feel extraordinary measures are justified to keep people safe, others are experiencing the collateral damage of the War on Terror. People like Halim Abdelmalik. The day before Alain's speech, in another Paris suburb, Halim was summoned to his local police precinct. He wasn't sure what he was there for. The letter he had received cited a work issue. Halim runs a tow service for motorcycles, and he thought maybe one of his employees had a run in with the law. I was
3: there an hour, feeling a little stressed. A cop takes me by the arm, makes me get in the elevator. What's going on, sir? No one responded.
2: Upstairs, Halim was handed another letter. This one said he was suspected of being a radical Islamist, and it assigned him to house arrest, immediately and indefinitely.
0: I was
3: afraid, frankly. I was afraid. I was worn out.
2: Parliament granted Hollande's request for an extension of the state of emergency. And over the next few weeks, hundreds of these letters were distributed to people around the country based on information provided by domestic intelligence, Clémence Bechtard is a lawyer with the International Federation for Human Rights, headquartered in Paris. Well,
4: what's changed uh, basically is that the threshold of evidence is very low.
2: During this state of emergency, Bechtard says, security services have not needed to convince a judge to allow them to act. So they've done so solely on the basis of these so-called note blanches, or white papers. Unsigned notes uh, prepared by the
4: uh, intelligence services, uh, which can say one thing and whatever about one individual. And on the single basis of these elements, uh, a citizen can be placed under house arrest for very long periods of time.
2: In the U.S., we would call these warrantless detentions.
4: Before, uh, if the security services did have these famous note blanche and that kind of evidence, they had to pass through the judicial system, meaning putting this uh, evidence on a certain threshold so that uh, an individual could defend himself um, and so that a judge could effectively control if the evidence was sufficient or not uh, to to justify an attempt to individual liberties. So um, this was a, a guarantee. A safeguard which was very important and which does not exist anymore under the state of emergency.
2: Halim was one of the men detained under the state of emergency. He lives in a spacious apartment in a new building just outside the city boundaries. From November until late January, this was where he spent most of his days, except for regular trips to the police department. He had to check in with the police three to four times a day and sign a form. He couldn't leave the boundaries of his town. He had a curfew. If he was late to check in or broke any of these rules, he faced jail time.
3: It was nonstop. Morning, I would always get up with fear in my stomach of arriving late to sign, knowing that I had prison hanging over me. Then, returning from the station, it's no longer fear. It's anger.
2: This was not Halim's first encounter with police. Halim says he was once a pretty serious juvenile delinquent, the son of two Algerian immigrants. He cleaned up his act when he found God as a teenager and began attending mosque. He's now in his mid thirties. He wears a short squared off beard. He has a family, two little boys and his motorcycle breakdown service, which takes him all over Paris and the suburbs. He testified once in a case against a car theft ring that was sending money to terrorists in Yemen. He'd unknowingly bought one of the cars. But as far as he's aware, he'd never been of interest to counterterror investigators until last year. In May of 2015, before the November attacks but after the shooting at Charlie Hebdo, Halim collided with France's growing counter terror operations. By accident, really. He was visiting the southeast Paris neighborhood where he grew up.
3: I was coming to join my wife at my mother's house where she was dropping off Mohammed, our littlest son, so
0: that I could then drop her off at the dentist.
2: He stopped on his motorbike at the corner to wait for her. With his helmet still on, he gave his wife a call, holding the phone out in front of him on speaker. Then, a man approached him.
3: A man, a policeman in plain clothes. I'd noticed him, too. He comes and takes a photo of me. He takes three photographs, one from the front, one from the back,
0: and one from the left of my scooter.
3: So politely, I asked, but sir, why are you taking a photo of me? He said, no, no. He didn't respond. I said, but really, why are you taking a photo of me? He gave me a little smile that was a little mocking contemptuous, and then returned towards his colleagues.
2: Halim knew there was a security detail on this corner. People in the neighborhood would chat about the police van that had been parked there since January. Things like that had become relatively normal since the attacks. But having his picture taken struck Halim as strange, and he talked about it all day. Then, while eating a late dinner at a restaurant, he got a call from Malika, his wife, It was just after midnight.
3: My wife called me saying, Halim, there were some very big, serious police officers who just came to the house.
2: According to Malika, the men had been polite. Calm down, madam. Is your husband home? She'd offered to call him then, but they said it wasn't necessary and left her with a letter.
3: Give him the summons. Tomorrow he must present himself urgently to this address here. And really, we're not kidding. He really needs to come.
2: So the next afternoon, Halim traveled to police headquarters. It's an imposing stone building in the center of the city, something you might see in a Paris postcard on the banks of the Seine or in a French police drama. Halim's meeting was with the anti-terrorism division. He had to hand over his phone so the interrogator could go through his pictures. Apparently, one of the surviving Charlie Hebdo cartoonists lived in his mother's neighborhood. That's why the police van was parked there, near where Halim had been photographed the day before. When the police saw Halim talking on speakerphone, they thought he was doing some kind of reconnaissance.
3: I said, I didn't know there was a guy who worked on Charlie Hebdo. I don't give a shit. And you're wasting your time.
2: The interrogator asked to look into his bank account. He agreed, and he didn't hear from them for months. Terrorism isn't new in France, and the laws that allow the state to respond to threats have evolved gradually. But there was something about the attacks in November, how coordinated and far-reaching and random they were, that struck people here as different and scarier than previous violence. It's part of the reason the French public has been relatively accepting of what the government has done since that November night. Halim had a ticket to attend the soccer match at the Stade de France, where two suicide bombers struck. But he says he did a really tough workout earlier in the day and decided to go home and watch the game on television instead.
3: During the game, as soon as we heard the first noise, then there was nothing. Then there was the second. So we said to each other, What's going on? And then the phone rang. It was my little brother calling. And he said to me, Halim, fuck, turn on BFM right away.
2: He turned from the game to BFM, a news channel.
0: I said,
3: oh la la, what's going on? It's catastrophic.
2: There were bombings outside the Stade de France, a hostage crisis in the Bataclan Concert Hall, and dozens of people killed in French cafes by gunmen and suicide bombers. The city went into lockdown. People crowded into nearby friends' or strangers' houses to spend the night. Bernard Scorsini is a former head of French domestic intelligence under President Nicolas Sarkozy. He's now a private consultant advising companies on security threats. He says people who commit these types of attacks are often already on the government's radar.
5: À travers des listes de suspects, de there gens are lists of people who are being watched but have not but done enough to sound the alarm and begin a judicial, judicial proceeding. Okay.
0: Rentrer
4: sous les clignotants judiciaires et de la procédure
2: This is one of the things that's been extensively covered since the attacks, how many of the Paris attackers were known to intelligence services. But some people under government surveillance might never do any harm. Before the state of emergency, the government's agents had to wait and watch and try to identify real threats before they happened. But in the immediate aftermath of these unprecedented, simultaneous attacks, Squarcini says it made sense to take extraordinary measures and lock down people the government had real concerns about.
5: Those surveilled could be questioned, searched, and if you found something interesting, you could fall back on the criminal system.
2: If the police, based on their suspicions, found evidence of a crime, they could proceed with a normal criminal prosecution. If not, well, perhaps they'd keep surveilling or place the person under house arrest. Maybe some were cleared, but it's hard to know. Scorsini says security services appear to have cast a very wide net. He says he suspects that's either because of bad intelligence or because they were under political pressure to look tough. The state of emergency was extended again and again. And by late April, security forces had conducted around 3,500 searches of homes, shops, and mosques. The press reported on some injuries and property damage, including to mosques, during raids. An eerie silent security camera video was shown in the news of a raid on a restaurant serving halal Tex-Mex food north of Paris. In the video, the pepper grill is full of diners, who all put their hands on their heads as police with machine guns file in the door. The
4: essence of these measures are linked to, to potential abuses.
2: Bechtart, the lawyer with the International Federation for Human Rights, says by lifting legal protections over such an extended period of time, problems became inevitable.
4: Public opinion was under major shock, and uh, we think that this emotion was a great deal instrumentalized by the by the government. This has been witnessed in a lot of countries, democratic or less, or non-democratic states. And every time, uh, the alerts have been the same, saying, be careful, because by sacrificing our individual liberties, uh, we can open, pave the way to more um, infringements of these liberties. Mm.
2: There has been pushback. In May, the state of emergency was extended a third time, but without the warrantless searches. And Hollande's request for a constitutional amendment had a lot of support at first, but in the end, it failed. But France's temporary crisis mode has been in place almost seven months. this state of emergency, the government can still keep people in house arrest without bringing charges. As of late April, more than 400 people have been placed under house arrest for at least some period of time. Their outcomes have varied. Halim's house arrest in November continued through January, taking a toll on his personal life and business. His employees, frustrated with the extra hurdles of working for a housebound boss, quit one by one. Acquaintances and customers also started to back away.
0: Ça it created doubt for people. Ali, they're
3: afraid. They say to themselves, Well, Halim, uh, he, he travels a lot. Est-ce que we know him, but maybe oui, we don't know him que enough.
0: Que on le connaît, mais like on the terrorists pas afterwards, assez, people comme comme say, when they're les witnesses, les witnesses they say, t'as We didn't know. He was nice.
2: After a couple of weeks, Halim found a lawyer to help him challenge his detention in court.
0: Mais là, on fait un travail franchement méticuleux, c'est-à-dire are parle de factures téléphoniques.
3: We did, frankly, meticulous work.
0: We're talking about the telephone bill of the
3: precise moment where I called my wife when I was on the
0: scooter. I
3: added evidence, and then I gave precise details to the minute, to the second of the events of the day. I'd seen it on the television. It works. You need to give the littlest details.
2: After 68 days, an appeals judge overturned his house arrest. According to French newspapers, it was the first house arrest under the state of emergency to be suspended by a court. In late February, the Interior Ministry abandoned its efforts to detain him. The courts have only thrown out a handful of cases, but gradually the government has lifted or let lapse hundreds of other sentences. As of late April, only 69 people were still under house arrest.
4: But without even explaining why it was justified, you know, at one time and then it wasn't anymore. These people were very often not at all interrogated.
2: And since only a handful of terrorism prosecutions have gone ahead, Bechtart says it appears the government targeted a lot of people who were never a serious threat. A number of watchdog organizations, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, have expressed similar concerns. Yasser Lawati works with the Collective Against Islamophobia in France. Lately, he says, the group has been inundated with hundreds of calls from people who were under house arrest or whose homes were searched under the state of emergency.
0: So from the testimonies we are collecting from victims, it is a sense of retaliation against them because they are Muslims.
2: He says if at least some French Muslims believe they're being unfairly targeted, this is ultimately counterproductive to France's goals.
0: And what do these terrorists say? you are being persecuted they are humiliating you they are targeting you in your homes and your mosques in your businesses etc come to us you will fight for your dignity
2: in an email the french interior ministry wrote that it has seized more than 700 guns and proceeded with prosecutions for a number of crimes it did not respond to concerns about whether the french government is detaining innocent people or profiling jonah levy is a professor of comparative politics at uc berkeley he says France has historically set the balance between state power and individual liberty far more in favor of the state than the U.S.
5: France has extensive police powers, extensive censorship laws, extensive restrictions on individual liberties, all in the name of public order.
2: Levy says the general idea has been to empower the state to do good rather than to prevent it from doing harm.
5: But as we've already seen, those powers can easily bleed into other areas where they were not originally intended.
2: Just after the attacks, the French government used the state of emergency to detain environmental activists.
5: Uh, We saw this with the Patriot Act in the United States that has been used far more widely than its founders ever imagined. The French have in many ways gone further than the Patriot Act. And at some point, there may be more pushback as uh, the range of people who are being investigated or in- interred preventatively uh, expands.
2: Halim has mixed feelings about what the government has been doing. He agrees that the scale of the raids and house arrest creates hostility against the police and makes people afraid to report things they hear. But because Halim's case has gotten a lot of press and since his own detention ended, He now gets calls from people under house arrest seeking his advice. He tries to help many of these detainees, but others, he says he's turned away.
3: It's important to note one thing all the same.
0: Among the detainees,
3: there are at least 20 of them who are really detained for something, really. I've had them on the telephone. I've talked with them. There are some that I've met face to face. They're scary in what they say. They're scary. You can say to him, okay, look, I assume,
0: dans leur façon de penser, and I hope ils font that God will guide you, que, that you will change.
3: you're assume,
0: j'espère que Dieu te guide, que tu vas changer, parce que, oh là là, tu fais peur.
2: Halim says it's important the government detains dangerous people, but only the dangerous people. The former head of intelligence, Scorsini, agrees. He says he has also not been pleased to see the state of emergency extended for so long.
5: C'est là où il faut moduler. You need to adapt to raise in intensity and redescend as soon as possible. But afterwards, it's a political problem, because if you take off the pressure and there's an attack, people will blame the political action. So there's a problem.
2: And that problem leads to an environment with a lot of uncertainty, as France continues to try and find a balance between civil liberties and security. It's an environment Halim worries about his sons growing up in.
4: How
0: are you, you How are you? How are you? How
4: are you.
2: Halim and Malika try to get their older son, Ayub, who's just turning five, to practice his English with the visiting English speaker. While Halim was under house arrest, he had to stop taking his son to his special trilingual preschool, where he was learning French, English, and Arabic, because it was in another suburb. Now, even though Halim's permitted to leave his town, he and his wife decided to keep their son at home for the rest of the year.
0: He's been out for two months, and if I put
3: him back just like that, everyone is going to say to him, why weren't you here? And I never, never want that. That I want to preserve the children from by any means.
0: I couldn't stand if a child two or three kids said to
3: my son, your father was detained.
2: Lim says he's lucky that his children are too young to understand much of what's happened over the past year. But that won't last forever. He worries that as they grow up, the delicate balance between liberty and security in France will be stacked against them. For Life of the Law, I'm Emma Jacobs in Paris.
1: Liberty and Security was reported by Emma Jacobs and edited by Ibi Caputo, with sound design and production by Jonathan Hirsch. We want to thank Alyssa Bernstein, Kirsten Jesuits heidel and Damian Fitzpatrick for their support. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Steve Fox and Jim Bennett were our engineers. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Stories about block bosses who give out hugs and slugs. Attorneys with 1-800-NUMBERS and ads on TV at 3 a.m. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters, reviews of plays, books, and movies, with previews of upcoming episodes. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a non-profit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law.
5: When we met at home after school and I asked Zach what had happened, he burst into tears. He told me that after lunch, Ms. Walker and a uniformed police officer came and called him out of his seventh grade science classroom. They told him to collect his things. They went to his locker, pulled everything out and searched it, and then they went to Ms. Walker's office where they poured out his backpack, searched every crevice, and searched his body as well. They had him take off his shoes and socks. They made him lift up his pant legs, pull out the waistband of his pants, and they patted him down to make sure he didn't have any drugs. That's
1: next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.